With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Carrie Buck hadn't meant to get pregnant. In fact, she hadn't meant to have sex. It was forced on her at age 17 by a nephew of her foster parents. Foster parents who, when they learned of her quote-unquote condition, quickly moved to boot her from the house. Carrie's birth father had ditched the family when she was young, and Carrie's birth mother, Emma, had been arrested for vagrancy and sex work, which led to mom being committed to an institution for supposedly feeble-minded people, which led to Carrie being given to foster parents because mom was supposedly too dumb and amoral to raise her. See, the state of Virginia had tried to protect Carrie by putting her in a foster home where she ultimately was raped and impregnated. Carrie was shuttled to the same institution as her mother, where she gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Vivian. A judge decided that Carrie wasn't just too dumb to raise her kid, but she was too dumb to procreate at all. And so the judge ordered that Carrie be sterilized under Virginia's brand new eugenics law, leading to a 1927 ruling that to this day is considered among the worst in American history, not to mention enduring proof that the U.S. Supreme Court is far from infallible. The story of the lawsuit Buck v. Bell seems an appropriate one to follow last week's episode on the Tewksbury State Almshouse. While that investigation was in 1880s Massachusetts and the institution Carrie Buck would be sent to some 40 years later was in Virginia, there are thematic overlaps and it'll just be easier to explain how Carrie ended up in the position she did if you already know the history of almshouses slash asylums in general. For newcomers, the basics are these. Almshouses were institutions created to house poor people, though many of them also took in the mentally ill and or physically sick. Some had horrible track records in terms of how patients were treated, Allegations at Tewksbury suggested that bodies were being inappropriately sold to area colleges for dissection, and also that skin from dead patients had been tanned and used to make slippers and other so-called curiosities. At the turn of the century, there was a push to segregate the different types of patients in these institutions, as in keep the poor in one place, the mentally ill in another. 
The push, in part, was fueled by sheer numbers. A lot of people were flooding almshouses already. And thanks to the eugenics movement, that problem was about to get far worse. Now, if you don't know about this movement, here's a primer. At the core of the movement's belief system was the conviction that human heredity was fixed and immutable, that it's nature, not nurture, that makes you the human being that you are. This is Dr. Patricia Haber-Rice giving a talk called A History of Eugenics. The idea in a nutshell is this, that if you can breed a better dog or horse, as humankind has been doing for centuries, we can breed a better person and a better national body. The thinking was this. Some traits are desirable, like intelligence, physical prowess, affluence. Some traits aren't, like mental shortcomings, physical ailments, or simply being poor. This might sound crazy, but the fact is that eugenics was hugely popular within the American medical community and beyond. Eugenics was an international movement, and in its heyday, right before the First World War, Great Britain, the United States, and Germany were leaders in the movement. The different countries stressed different things, but the gist of each country's movement was threefold. First, they wanted to pick out the so-called good stock within society and encourage those people to reproduce. Second, they wanted to define the supposedly bad stock, people who were seen as a burden on society, and discourage them from reproducing. And third, they wanted to keep the races from marrying each other. Because, you know, they figured one was better than another. Now, if the eugenics movement had stopped here, as in with simply espousing its racist, classist philosophy, it would probably be looked back on today as a bad idea and a horribly outdated way of thinking. But the eugenics movement didn't stop there. Not even close. Both the United States and Nazi Germany imposed compulsory sterilization laws in the first half of the 20th century. Sterilization, as in forced surgery to ensure someone cannot reproduce. Did you know we did that in America? Because most people I've asked did not. But let's get back to the Buck family. Emma Buck had been born Adeline Emma Harlow in rural Virginia in 1872. She was an uneducated woman, born poor, who married an uneducated man named Frank W. Buck in 1896. Their daughter Carrie was the first of three children Emma would have. The second was a girl named Doris, also Frank's child, while the third was a boy named Roy Smith, fathered by another man who came along after Frank deserted the family. Because Emma was a single mom without many employment prospects, her kids ended up in the system. Author Adam Cohen. Back then, there was a belief that it was better often to take poor children away from their parents and put them in middle-class homes. So she was put in a foster family that treated her very badly. She wasn't allowed to call the parents mother and father. She did a lot of housekeeping for them and was rented out to the neighbors. Carrie was four when she was sent to the home of Mr. and Mrs. J.T. Dobbs. The Dobbses weren't as interested in Carrie as a daughter, though, as they were in Carrie as a house servant. Carrie did chores around the house while also attending elementary school. She was said to have done well in school. She was never held back. She passed every grade she attempted. Her sixth grade teacher actually called Carrie's work and behavior, quote, very good. But Carrie stopped attending school after the sixth grade, which was common in rural Virginia in the early 1900s. 
Whether dropping out was her choice or the Dobbs's isn't clear. But either way, her lack of studies meant she had more time to do chores around the house. In the early 1920s, Mrs. Dobbs's nephew, a guy named Clarence Garland, joined the household to help with farm work. He was in his 20s, while Carrie was about 16. In the summer of 1923, the Dobbses left for a bit, and when they came back, Carrie was pregnant. Carrie told them that Clarence had raped her. The Dobbses moved quickly through the court system to try to get Carrie committed to a place called the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and the Feeble-Minded. Their argument was that she had never been quite right, and now she was proving herself to be a hussy to boot. They never mentioned that the sex leading to the pregnancy hadn't been consensual, so nephew Clarence was never investigated. Now, their hopes of shipping Carrie off pre-baby were dashed because the institution wouldn't admit a pregnant woman. It was after Carrie gave birth to baby Vivian that she was finally committed to the colony, where she developed a relationship with her mother for the first time. Carrie is designated, as her mother was, as being feeble-minded, being sexually promiscuous, being someone who couldn't control herself and who would have children just like herself. This is author Paul Lombardo, who wrote the book Three Generations, No Imbeciles, Eugenics, the Supreme Court, and Buck v. Bell. And you might be wondering what feeble-minded means. Generally, it means someone who can't make smart decisions or judgments, someone who has less than average intelligence. And how do you test for such a thing? Well, that's the really fun part. You don't. It's a super vague label that, in the early 20th century, was slapped on pretty much anyone a doctor wanted to label as such. Not great at math? You might be feeble-minded. Had sex out of wedlock? Feeble-minded. Addicted to drugs? Feeble-minded. Doctors couldn't clearly, consistently define the condition, but they were sure of a few things. First, feeble-mindedness was bad. Second, it was hereditary. And third, it needed to be nixed from humanity. Here's the genesis. Pretty much since the beginning of time, humans have judged each other. And, as mentioned earlier, there have always been traits considered more desirable than others. The philosopher Plato, born in the 5th century BC, was among the earliest to encourage lawmakers to create policies aimed at pairing up people with desirable traits and encouraging them to get busy making babies. Aristotle picked up the torch a few centuries later. Fast forward to the 1800s, and you find Charles Darwin presenting his theory of evolution by natural selection, which eventually would be summed up as survival of the fittest. Now, Darwin wasn't the only smarty-pants scientist in his family. His younger cousin, Francis Galton, was too. And Galton took the idea that some traits outlast others to mean that some traits are superior. Thus, he founded eugenics, the quote-unquote science of improving the human race through selective breeding. From a mini-documentary by the Crash Course YouTube channel. The metaphor used by eugenicists was drawn from Darwin but modified. A family or nation was a tree, and its branches sometimes needed pruning. For the movement to gain the ground that it did, proponents had to convince people that certain traits are hereditary. To do that, they turned to supposedly scientific studies. One involved a family dubbed the Jukes. Not their real surname, but it'll do. 
The matriarch of the family was a woman called the, quote, mother of criminals, who raised a, quote, race of criminals, paupers, and harlots, end quote. Sociologist Richard Dugdale found six members of this same family in jail, so he dug into the family's genealogy and determined that of 29 male immediate blood relations, 17 had been arrested and 15 convicted of various crimes. So see, it was hereditary. Dugdale published his findings in 1877, in which he included a price tag. The point was that the social effect of this large uh, family of vice was a tremendous cost to the communities where the Jukes lived. The bill for jails, for almshouses, for stolen property, for medical or legal expenses added up, said Dugdale, to something like a million and a quarter dollars in 75 years, and that didn't even count the money that was wasted on liquor. That was Paul Lombardo again in a presentation at the University of Michigan. There was another study by American psychologist Henry H. Goddard. Goddard had evaluated two branches of a family sired by a man named John Wolverton. To protect the family's privacy, Goddard gave them all pseudonyms with the surname Kalakak. So if you Google what I'm talking about, use that name instead. Anyway, John Wolverton was a complicated character. He's a Revolutionary War soldier. He's got a good side and he's got a bad side. He, after one particularly difficult battle, finds himself in the local tavern where he falls in among bad companions, not the least of whom is a woman always described as the feeble-minded tavern girl, some wanton, who bears him a son. Wolverton also had a respectable side, and it was that side of him that led him to marry a lovely and worthy Quaker woman. They had seven children, and those children were fine. That wasn't the case with Wolverton's illegitimate son, whom his barmaid lover raised by herself. That son was such a hellion that he earned the nickname Old Horror. And Old Horror went on to father ten children. And wouldn't you know it, those children were little shits in a variety of ways. And from Old Horror's ten children come hundreds, according to this textbook, still in print in the 1960s, hundreds of the lowest type of human beings. Goddard could have wondered if, gee, maybe it was a disadvantage to be raised in poverty by a single mother who no doubt was ostracized for having a married man's love child, and maybe one child born into such circumstances had lasting impact on the family tree. I mean, maybe Wolverton's seven legitimate children fared better because they had a two-parent loving home to grow up in. But that's not what Goddard decided. He decided that the barmaid was feeble-minded, while Mrs. Wolverton was not, and that's why Wolverton's illegitimate kid was such a piece of work. It was all hereditary. This study came out in 1912 and was still being cited in 1960s psychology textbooks. Goddard concluded that feeble-mindedness was strongly heritable and a danger to democracy. Although he later admitted that this was a flawed study, it was a hit, and his terms for different levels of intelligence became common. Moron, imbecile, idiot. Goddard's attempts to quantify intelligence weren't at the fringes of science. His ideas are creepily still with us in the form of intelligence quotient, or IQ tests. Now, the early thinking only focused on what's called positive eugenics, meaning that the government should somehow encourage the mating of these superior creatures. 
By this point, the scientific world was well aware of dominant and recessive traits, so their hope was that by consistently breeding people with mostly positive attributes, we eventually would end up with a country full of nothing but, I don't know, I guess sharp-dressed businessmen and virginal cheerleaders. The idea of sterilizing humans to ensure that people deemed unfit could not have children, period, Well, that falls under the heading of negative eugenics. And it's fucking nuts. The first compulsory sterilization law was passed in Indiana in 1907. It targeted confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and rapists housed in state institutions. This is sociologist Lutz Kalber. Or the establishment of state institutions to separate undesirable individuals from the public are examples of what sociologists call oppressive othering. Deviant characteristics, such as being inferior or dangerous, are ascribed unto others and oppressive measures employed against them. Now, what floors me is that these weren't fringe beliefs. Leading American scientists Charles Davenport and Henry Laughlin were among those who subscribed wholeheartedly. Davenport founded the Eugenics Record Office in 1910, which promoted things like immigration laws to keep out so-called defectives and forced sterilization of both the native-born and immigrants. Laughlin was an animal breeder who directed the Eugenics Record Office and believed that he could mathematically predict who would inherit good or bad traits from a documentary called A Dangerous Idea. Eugenicists saw themselves as agents of evolution, doing their duty to ensure that the fittest Americans survived. They said, we have to find a way to have people who are more evolved make more babies. We have to find a way to have people who are poor and who have all these diseases and all this bad genetic structure produce less. That second voice was Troy Duster, author of Backdoor to Eugenics. These studies went so far as to declare that nearly half of all American citizens, and far more of its immigrants, were likely dum-dums with genes we should torch. This is Nermain Sheikh, a host of Democracy Now! The 1924 Immigration Act was passed to prevent immigration by genetically inferior groups, which included Italians, Jews, Eastern Europeans, and countless others in an attempt to improve the genetic quality of the American population. Now, you might be wondering who precisely was going to decide which Americans were more evolved and which were of bad genetic structure. It's a good question, one that caused considerable controversy. People who were opposed to this philosophy, or at least opposed to sterilization, argued that it was a civil rights violation to force anyone to undergo surgery to lose their ability to parent offspring. Officials in Virginia weren't sure that it would hold up in court, So when that state passed its eugenics law in 1924, it did so with a plan to immediately challenge the new law with what's called a test case. And that's where Carrie Buck unwillingly entered the story. The plan to sterilize Carrie Buck was hatched by a man named Albert Pretty, who had founded and served as the first superintendent for the Virginia colony for the epileptic and the feeble-minded. Dr. Pretty wanted the sterilization law passed in the first instance for one simple reason. That's because he'd already started sterilizing people. In 1916 to 1918, he sterilized dozens of women that he thought were were sexually immoral. They'd been picked up on the streets of Richmond, Virginia, and other cities. 
and he simply took them to the operating room and sterilized them. He was eventually sued by a man whose wife and daughter had been sterilized there. The case dragged him into court in Richmond. He was very embarrassed by it and quite angry. Now, you might think that the judge who weighed this case might have found that Dr. Pretty had done something wrong, sterilizing women without permission and without a law in place saying it was okay. But you would be wrong. The judge said, you know, I'm not going to give the the plaintiffs money for this case because there is an argument to be made that maybe they needed it for therapeutic reasons, but don't do this anymore until there's a law. So Dr. Pretty and his lawyer drafted such a law. Carrie Buck had recently been dumped at Pretty's colony. Her mother had already been there for years. This seemed like the perfect test case to determine if Pretty would have to be subjected to more pesky lawsuits from family members of the people he neutered. To bolster his case, he had experts evaluate Carrie's daughter, the little girl named Vivian, mentioned earlier in the episode. At this point, the girl was just eight months old. She was examined by doctors and other experts, and they testified at the trial that she was not quite normal. Another person said, she's just not quite right. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something not normal about her. So this made the Buck family, Carrie, Emma, and Vivian, the three generations, really the perfect example of what Virginia's 1924 law, just written, had been meant to address. Uh, Problem families, families that were suffering from mental and moral defects, poverty that spanned generations, criminality, perhaps sexual excess, and probably most importantly, a tendency to consume more than a small share of tax-supported services. To get this case before a judge, Carrie would have to sue. So the colony's board of directors arranged for her to do just that. They appointed and paid a random guy named Robert Shelton to be Buck's guardian, and they also hired as Carrie's attorney a man named Irving Whitehead. Whitehead was appointed, very successful lawyer, was appointed to represent Carrie Buck, but he did not. He was best friends with the lawyer on the other side, not in itself all that strange in a little town, but he was one of the founding directors of the colony for the epileptics and the feeble-minded. He had lobbied for and voted in favor of sterilization even before the law allowed for it. Whitehead did the absolute bare minimum on Carrie's behalf. He didn't challenge the assertion that Buck was feeble-minded. He barely cross-examined any witnesses and called none of his own. Predictably, Carrie lost the case. Normally, lawyers don't like to lose, but Whitehead didn't seem to mind. Meanwhile, the Guardian, Robert Shelton, did as he was told and filed an appeal on Carrie's behalf. She lost that, too. Whitehead was thrilled. He said, after he lost twice, the case was in great shape and it was likely to go to the Supreme Court, which is what they had planned all along. They could not wish for a better result. Everyone involved, except for Carrie, had wanted Buck to lose at every level first the county, then the state appellate, so that it could reach the nation's highest court and serve as precedent for the rest of the country. I mean, it's really kind of amazing, frankly, that Indiana passed the first eugenics law in 1907, and about a dozen states followed suit before Virginia hopped aboard, yet Virginia's was the only law challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. It reached that height in 1927, By this time, though, Albert Pretty had died, so he was out as superintendent of the colony, having been replaced by a physician named John Hendron Bell. 
Thus, the court case was renamed from Buck v. Pretty to Buck v. Bell, and that's how it would go down in the history books. At the time, the nine-justice panel was all-male. The first woman wouldn't serve until 1981, so more than half a century later, and former President William H. Taft served as chief. The other justices were Oliver Holmes Jr., Willis Van Devanter, James McReynolds, Louis Brandeis, George Sutherland, Pierce Butler, Edward Sanford, and Harlan Stone. Taft might well be the only name you recognize today, but back in 1927, this was considered... A port that includes several real legal giants. For example, here's Louis Brandeis. Brandeis, of course, being known uh, most popularly for his invocation of the right to privacy, the right to be left alone. Taft is a formidable figure in many ways, but he really takes a back seat as a judge to the, uh, the real star of this story, and that's Oliver Wendell Holmes. Holmes was the longest serving justice at the time, having served on the high court for 25 years. He was the oldest justice. He was clearly the most famous. He had been celebrated on the cover of Time magazine only the year earlier when he celebrated his 85th birthday. He was really all but a god to his admirers. Holmes was a junior. The senior Holmes was a famous scholar, poet, and physician who ran around with friends like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. His most famous poem, published in 1830, was Old Ironsides, a tribute to the USS Constitution. He was in the newspapers all the time in his day. By the way, when researching him, I noticed that the family friend who planned to make arrangements for Holmes Sr. after he died in 1894 was none other than John Dixwell, the doctor whose name you might recognize because a decade prior, he had testified about horrible patient treatment in the Tewksbury Almshouse investigation. It's a crazy weird coincidence. Holmes Jr. was married to Dixwell's sister, Fanny. Now, while Holmes Jr. was regularly likened to his more famous father in his youth, he also took after his mother, Amelia Lee Holmes, who was an ardent abolitionist. Her son would follow suit. He fought for the North in the Civil War, nearly dying at the Battle of Ball's Bluff in 1861. And this guy actually got shot three separate times before the war ended, and two were really serious, one to the chest, another to the neck, and yet he survived. Because his dad was famous, this made more headlines than it might have otherwise, but later in life, Holmes Jr. got famous in his own right, as a judge. Probably his most famous opinion included this line. He said that the First Amendment does not protect reckless action, like falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater. He said that even unpopular speech could be, could not be suppressed unless it posed a clear and present danger of violence. What's funny about that is that the case he was writing about, U.S. v. Shank, wasn't about yelling fire at all. It was about a guy who had distributed pamphlets in 1917 opposing the draft in World War I. In the ruling that agreed with jailing that guy, Holmes wrote the theater line as a way to say, hey, the First Amendment isn't absolute. There are limits, people. And peacefully protesting war via pamphlets posed a clear and present danger to society, according to Holmes and every one of his fellow justices. Schenck went down in history as a bad ruling that was overturned by a subsequent ruling in 1969. Now, Carrie Buck's case was unlike anything 
that had reached the Supreme Court before. We often think about Supreme Court decisions as hallowed, righteous things meant to ensure that society's most vulnerable are protected against the powerful. And think Brown versus Board of Education of 1954, which declared that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. But there are quite a few rulings over SCOTUS's history that kick the vulnerable while they're down. Like Dred Scott v. Sanford of 1857, which ruled that African Americans, whether free or enslaved, could not be considered American citizens. If they were, good God, black people could vacation or hold public meetings or, gasp, exercise their free speech rights. Nearly 40 years later after that one, SCOTUS's ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson upheld state segregation laws, giving a seal of approval to Jim Crow laws. So it's safe to say that by the 1920s, the high court had made some bad calls on long-debated civil rights issues. Carrie Buck's case was something entirely different. The Supreme Court had never dealt with the merits of government-mandated surgery before, much less a law that prescribed operations that were primarily designed not for individual medical benefit, but for state benefit. But that doesn't mean the justices weren't well aware of the eugenics movement sweeping the nation. Holmes had grown up among Boston's elite, an upper-class crew nicknamed the Boston Brahmin, which was a phrase that his dad actually coined and Junior embraced. And the idea was that these fancy families in Boston were like the Brahmins in India, that they were the highest caste. So he believed this. He wrote about eugenics even before this case came along, wrote about it favorably. So when the case gets to him, he believes that people like Harry Buck poor, white, uneducated people are much lesser than him. So it's very natural for him to say, of course, we don't need more people like Harry Buck. We need more people like me and my Boston Brahmin neighbors. Holmes wasn't alone in his thinking. Eight of the nine justices agreed with him. The only to dissent was Justice Pierce Butler, who didn't bother writing a dissent, so we can't deeply analyze the reasons he disagreed. We can only assume that he worried about it violating civil liberties. You think? Because Holmes wrote the majority opinion in this case, and because what he wrote was pithy and quotable, he's the one most closely associated with it, though everyone but Butler agreed with him that the government should be allowed to force sterilization on its citizens, and that includes former President Taft. What Holmes wrote was that Carrie Buck, her mother Emma, and her daughter Vivian were all feeble-minded, and that... It was in Virginia's interest to get her sterilized. So basically, public welfare was more important than the welfare of one person's body. A classic greater good argument comparing sterilization to forced vaccinations. This is Mr. Beat, another YouTube historian I would have loved to have had around when I was in school. In fact, Holmes referenced the case Jacobson v. Massachusetts, a 1904 Supreme Court decision which upheld a Massachusetts law forcing kids going to school to get the smallpox vaccine. He wrote, quote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind, unquote. It's the last line of Holmes's opinion that reverberated the loudest. Holmes now infamously concluded by writing that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, unquote. Wow, Wendell. Just wow, buddy. 
Having won the case, Dr. Bell of the Virginia Colony sterilized Carrie Buck soon after the ruling. Carrie, no longer capable of passing along her tainted genes, was released from the colony. Later, people who actually gave a shit would look back over her records and realize, hey, she had actually done well in school, so why was she called feeble-minded? And she had been raped, so why was she labeled promiscuous? Not only that, but Vivian, Carrie's supposedly not-right daughter, was intellectually just fine. The poor girl died at age eight after catching an infection, but her schoolwork up until then showed she had been on the school's honor roll before she got sick. She had been unfairly labeled an imbecile by one of the most respected justices in the nation. Now, as Virginia had hoped, the SCOTUS ruling had legs. It opened the door for more states to adopt eugenics laws, and those laws were used plenty. This is Nermaine Sheikh again. The decision resulted in 60 to 70,000 sterilizations of Americans considered unfit to reproduce. That was the first wave of sterilizations, to be clear, which opened the door for even worse. Because among subscribers to the eugenics way of thinking was... Hitler. Adolf Hitler believed that certain genes were desirable while others were not. It fueled the Holocaust. He believed, or said he believed anyway, in the superiority of the Germanic race. His ideal person was blonde, blue-eyed, and tall, Never mind that as a fairly short, Austrian-born, dark-haired guy, he himself had only one of those traits. I've always had a hard time wrapping my head around how, back in the day, anyone let Hitler denigrate entire groups of people. I mean, really, the majority of people alive. How did his propaganda begin to spread, touting genetic superiority, without someone smacking it down and saying, "Uh, that's nuts? was because he didn't come up with his philosophies on his own. He imported the basics from other countries, most notably the U.S. From the documentary, A Dangerous Idea. Eugenics was widely accepted in the United States as solid science among the country's top psychologists, scientists, politicians, and social thinkers. How could you expect a nation to take issue with a man claiming some traits are better than others when the nation's most respected thinkers had believed, and indeed its highest court had ruled, that this was true. On top of that, there was no consensus in America among the eugenicists about what to do about their beliefs. Some just wanted to encourage mating among desirables. Others figured a capitalistic society would slowly weed out the weak naturally. Others took a harder line. Society should not coddle in any way the poor. Don't help them. This is Robert Reich, former U.S. Secretary of Labor, in a dangerous idea. Don't help them through charity. Don't help them through legislation. You see, if you help them, according to the social Darwinists, you would only enable them to reproduce more of them. Society would be better off if we instituted survival of the fittest. We would get stronger just as species become stronger when their weakest members die off and their strongest members live on to reproduce. But that would take decades. So many eugenicists considered a quicker solution, one that would eventually be used by the Nazis, euthanasia. Some called for outright execution of the unfit as well as lethal neglect of newborns they considered defective. 
I'd love to say that after World War II, we were done with all this eugenicist nonsense, but no. Joseph Levin, best known as co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, sued the Nixon administration in the 1970s after he learned that war on poverty money was being used to forcibly sterilize poor people. A lot of people. Some 400,000 people. The majority of whom were women of color. A woman might go to her doctor for something minor, like getting a cyst removed. And her doctor might opt to do a tubal ligation while he was at it. Levin's lawsuit focused on two sisters, Minnie and Mary Alice Ralph, ages 12 and 14. At no time prior to the surgery did any physician discuss with the girls or their parents the nature or consequences of the surgery to which Minnie and Mary Alice were about to be subjected. Not only that, but the Montgomery, Alabama facility that sterilized the girls had done so with federal money. Levin filed a class action lawsuit sparking outrage. Native American activist Russell Means was outspoken on the matter. I'm talking about the deprivation and the genocide of American Indian people. I'm talking about our women, 42% who were sterilized from 1971 to 1975, and not a whimper of, of indignation from this country. The Ralph case led to the prohibition of using federal funds for involuntary sterilizations, which, in turn, slowly led states to overturning their eugenics laws. Virginia, which had forced carry box surgery, reversed the law in 1979 and finally apologized for the policy in 2002. The last documented state-forced sterilization was in Oregon in 1981, but it's still not totally gone. The Ralph case didn't overturn it on a federal level, It just said that federal funds couldn't be used for it. SCOTUS did rule against sterilization being used as a punitive measure in 1942's Skinner v. Oklahoma, but technically, the Buck decision still stands, and it's worth noting that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement now stands accused of forcibly sterilizing detainees in their care. As for Carrie Buck, it turned out that she wasn't the only Buck sterilized. Her sister Doris had tried for years to conceive a child with her husband. She felt like a failure when it never happened. She was in her 60s when she finally learned from journalists trying to track down Carrie for a where-are-they-now story that she learned she, too, had been sterilized. Neither Doris nor Carrie were ever compensated or apologized to for what happened to them, but the state of Virginia did erect a historical marker commemorating the case and acknowledging that Buck and many others had no hereditary defects. To research the story, I watched the documentary A Dangerous Idea, read a bunch of case law, and read Adam Cohen's book, Imbeciles, The Supreme Court, American Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. Next week, I'll get back to murder. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. 
If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>